Welcome back to the program. We live today in what's called an age of technology. Every day there are new apps, new ways in which incumbency is disrupted. But very few of the creators or inventors of today understand the long view of their place in and their ability to change the world. Steve Jobs did, Elon Musk does, maybe even Mark Zuckerberg. Because part of that understanding comes from education, from seeing the world beyond themselves and their work, and seeing the work's larger place in the world. During another fertile period of innovation in America, as we moved from the 19th to the 20th century, the same was true. And sitting high atop that pantheon of those that would seek to change the world were Orville and Wilbur Wright. With the support of their family, their little bicycle shop in Dayton was perhaps the ultimate tech startup of the time. Wilbur and Orville Wright and their family are the subject of a new biography by multiple award-winning historian David McCullough. David McCullough has twice received the Pulitzer Prize, twice received the National Book Award. He's a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the author of such groundbreaking books as The Path Between the Seas, Truman, John Adams, The Great Bridge, 1776, and so many others. It is my pleasure, as always, to welcome David McCullough back to this program. David, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Thank you very much. Delight oh. to have you here. One of the things that is so striking in reading about the Wright brothers is this constant reminder about the linkage between technology and history and the way in which the two are so related. Talk first about that a little bit. Well, I really appreciate your introductory remarks in their sense of uh, what they were doing was of importance beyond uh, their own time and their own uh, uh, gratification or... or uh, feeling of success. Uh, theirs is a very interesting story in, in numerous ways, but one of the most interesting aspects of it all is how they were educated, how they were brought up. They never finished high school even, let alone go to college, but they grew up in a home with very little in the way of modern-day amenities, no running water, no indoor plumbing, no electricity, no telephone but a house full of books. And their father, who was an itinerant preacher, insisted that they read, and read widely and deeply, and learn to use the English language, not only correctly, but effectively. Uh, they read Hawthorne and Dickens and Sir Walter Scott and Mark Twain, but they also read Thucydides, they read Virgil's poetry, they read Boswell's Life of Johnson, they read history, they read natural history, they read philosophy, they read theology, on and on. They had what was, in effect, a full liberal arts education. And yet these young men who had this liberal arts education went on, on their own, to crack one of the most difficult and, and time-consuming puzzles ever in the history of human existence on Earth. Uh, and that's, I think, extremely important to remember, particularly in a time when young people who are ambitious to have careers in science or technology are being encouraged not only by uh, universities and colleges, but by their parents to skirt the humanities. Uh, don't bother your time with, with that. Uh, get deep into the technology you need to know. And I think that's a grievous mistake. 
for the very reason that you cited right at the beginning. Uh, they saw their efforts, they saw their high uh, aspirations as having a meaning in the in the in the long run, in, in on a on a broad human scale, but they also saw it as an expression of the power of creative effort, the the desire to achieve something unique, but also something of high purpose, and um, and that was not only the result of what they were reading or had read or kept on reading, but also the guidance and encouragement of their father. Now, that's a long answer, but I think it's a very, very important point about the Wright brothers. Right. One of the reasons I wanted to write the book. There's also another element to it that I think that this education and this larger understanding plays into, which is the nature of what they were doing and the courage it took to do that and to fly those planes. Well, there's no question about it. Uh, the common understanding is that they invented the airplane. And that's true, they did. But they did something else of equal importance. They learned how to fly it. Uh, there were other theorists like Octave Chanute or Samuel Langley who were serious scientists, serious thinkers, who came up with their various ideas of how man could fly, but wouldn't think of getting on the thing and trying to fly it themselves. And uh, Wilbur Wright put it perfectly. He said there two ways to train a wild horse. One is to sit on the fence and make notes about the animal and then retire to a comfortable chair at home and write a thesis on how to tame a wild horse. The other is to get on the horse and ride it. And he, and as Wilbur said, that was our way of going about it. And they, and they did so by testing their first, their gliders and then their motor powered flying machine themselves. And every time they did that, they were running the risk of getting killed. And they knew it. Uh, and it wasn't just they did it two or three times. They did it 50 times, 100 times in a year. And they never flew together because if one got killed, they wanted the other one to be alive still to carry on with the quest. What sense did they have of what others were trying to do at the time with respect to, to flight? They knew a great deal because Wilbur in particular was in constant communication, not only with the man Octave Chanute, who was a, a world-famous bridge engineer and who dabbled in the uh, ambition to achieve aviation success. And they communicated with the Smithsonian Institution. And they read the newspapers. They were very well read. They were as up-to-date as one could imagine. Also, Dayton, Ohio at that time, was in effect a hotbed of uh, innovation. Uh, all kinds of things were going on. Dayton, Ohio, on a, on a uh, per capita basis, had more patents issued to it than any other city in the country. And th th there was an atmosphere of, uh, of ingenuity into and innovation. And they were part of that. Um, but they did it all themselves. That's so important to understand. They had no backers. They had no university behind their their experiments. They had no, no foundation, no powerful, influential politician or business person. And they were, all that 
the, their expenditures were taken from their own very modest profits from their bicycle shop. And what was so remarkable is how little they spent in total to achieve what they did. Uh, the first plane that uh, that they flew, the, the epic-making flight of 1903 in December at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, that that all-important airplane cost them in total, in cash, less than $1,000, uh, a good part of which was spent on getting to Kitty Hawk uh, with the machine all crated up. Uh, whereas Samuel Langley's so-called aerodrome, built by Langley and his workers at the Smithsonian at largely public expense, cost $70,000, which doesn't sound like much today, but it was a fortune then. So they knew how to they know how, knew how to spend their money too, but one of the reasons that they that it cost so little is they made everything themselves. Uh, when they found that there was no motor available that would be light enough in weight, but yet powerful enough to lift a, their glider into the air, they had they realized, well, we'll have to make it ourselves. They've never made a motor ever, and they had the help of a very good machinist named Charlie Taylor, but he never made a motor either. And they built it out of aluminum, which apparently no one had thought of before. No one had tried before. And when at first it didn't work, the aluminum block that it was made from cracked. They said, well, we'll just make another one. And the second one not only worked, but it had more power than they anticipated. They wouldn't give up. I think that's as important, too, almost as their physical courage, their intellectual courage, too. No matter how many setbacks, how many failures, how much mockery they had to face, people just looted, thinking they were crackpots, and, and letting them know they thought so. Uh, the press, our, our federal government, ignoring them, thought they were weirdos, wouldn't even come and look at what they were doing. Uh, but that didn't deter them. Nor were they in it for money, nor were they in it for, for fame or celebrity. Not only were they not deterred, but it, not unlike technology today in many respects, every iteration of it was vastly improved from what they did in Kitty Hawk in 03 to what they took to France in 05 to the plane they flew in 08. They were constantly improving it. It was con Every version was kind of a beta exactly version. Exactly right. That's exactly right. They were, as Charlie Taylor, the, their machinist helper, said when they got back from Kitty Hawk after, after their success in 1903, the first flight of a motor-powered piloted air machine ever in all of history, he said there was no dancing a jig about what they'd accomplished because they were always thinking of what's next. What do we have to do now to make it better? And they spent, just as you said, they spent two years developing what really was the first practical airplane so that the birth of, of a practical airplane didn't come until 1905. And still, nobody took them seriously. And it wasn't until a French delegation showed up in Dayton and told them, you come over and show us what you can do, and we think we'll be very interested in it. And they didn't want to do that because they were profoundly patriotic Americans. But they had had the federal government slam the door in their face about three or four times, and they'd had enough of it. So Wilbur went across the Atlantic, something he'd never imagined himself doing, and performed... Uh, in front of uh, cr crowds uh, at Le Mans 
the great uh, racetrack town southwest of Paris, on, April, on August 8th, 1908, the eighth day of the eighth month of the eighth year of the new century. And then, and only until then, did the world know that man could fly. Instantly, they were the most famous people on earth, and it didn't change them one bit. They brought up the, an awful lot of what we are, I'm increasingly convinced, is how we were brought up at home. And they were brought up at home not to be braggers, not to keep their modesty. Don't get too big for your britches. Uh, remember who you are and always be a gentleman. Both of them were absolutely perfect gentlemen always. One of the things that was so remarkable when they did this demonstration flight in 1908 in Le Mans is how surprised everyone seemed to be at how far along they were, how they had outpaced everyone else that was working on this. That's exactly right. The French were very interested in aviation, far more than we were. It's sort of puzzling why we, why we didn't have more interest in it. But the French were actively involved, but their so-called pioneer aviators were way behind the Wright brothers. And the Wright brothers had developed a system of banking and turning that nobody else had. They called it wing warping, and it was based on their studies of soaring birds. Uh, birds like hawks and uh, the great gannets that were so prevalent on the Outer Banks with wingspans of up to six feet could get up into the air and just stay up there without flapping their wings. And they studied them by the hour, filled notebooks with their, with their observations. Very serious ornithological studies. And as uh, Orville Wright later said, to learn the secret of flight from watching the birds, the soaring birds, was like learning magic from a magician. The, uh, the birds they saw were the magicians of, on Earth, and they had the trick, they had the secret. And just study them and you'll figure it out. And they did. Why do you think there was so little interest in what they were doing here in America? They were thought to be only like so many of the others who were working on their little pet notions of how to fly, many of whom really were a little off the rocker. Uh, and some of their notions of what it would take to do it were, were openly hilarious and, of course, didn't work. Uh, so that they were just thought to be one more couple of kooks, uh, example of kooks at work. And as was understood by everybody, human beings can't, won't fly. It's not the way the world was created. The Washington Post ran an editorial in which they said, it's time we all wake up to the fact that human beings do not, will not ever fly. And this was a fixed popular misconception, which didn't deter the Wright brothers in the slightest. They had their, their vision set on a purpose and they were confident that if they could live to could get through it all, they could do it. And they were right. Now, again, a lot of that had to do with how they were raised. Their father and their sister, Catherine, whose importance has been, I think, most unfairly uh, unappreciated, um, believed in them. 
and there were others who believed in them, too. It wasn't just within the family. There were some people in Dayton who believed in them. And uh, someone like Octave Chanute believed in them. He realized, he realized something very important that we haven't talked about yet, and that is how brilliant they were. Orville was extremely innovative mechanically, no question about it, and quite remarkable in that way. But Wilbur, the older of the two, was a genius. I don't think there's any question about it. And Wilbur was the leader. Wilbur was the big brother, if you will. And Orville was quite pleased and quite ready to accept that relationship. Uh, they were not, they, in many ways they were very similar, but in many ways they were not at all alike. Uh, Orville could, was quite shy, almost to the point of a being a handicap, and he could have what in the family were known as his peculiar spells, where he'd get very blue and and uh, touchy and uh, sulking. Uh, wouldn't last very long, but it was a part of his nature. Wilbur um, had a reach of mind far beyond the normal, uh, one of those miraculous minds that only happens once in a while. And other people recognize that. There are certain stereotypical impressions that one has, and we still do it. If somebody didn't go to college, if somebody maybe didn't even finish high school, which neither of the brothers did, the assumption is, well, they're not quite up to the level that one needs to be a real success in life or to really be bright or brilliant. Not at all. Uh, and they had been encouraged to have their own objectives in their in their pursuits uh, since they were young boys from, by their father. Uh, if they had some project they wanted to work at at home rather than going to school that day, he'd say fine, as long as he approved of the project. So they would just stay home and work on whatever it was they were inventing. One of the other subsets of that was the time that Wilbur spent several years, two or three years, that he spent almost in isolation at home after he got his teeth knocked out. Talk about that period and the influence that it had on him. Well, he suffered an accident in a hockey game as a teenage boy, uh, 17 or 18 years old. He was hitting the teeth, knocked out all his upper front teeth. It was excruciatingly painful, and of course terribly damaging to his ego, his sense of, uh, of being presentable in the world. And he he suffered physically tremendously, but then he also suffered emotionally, and his outlook on life changed for the worse. He, he went into what today we would call depression, which lasted for two or three years. And he... he self-imposed isolation on himself uh, in that he stayed home, uh, stayed in the house. Uh, he'd been planning to go to Yale University, but all talk of Yale ended. And it was a, it was a quick, violent swerve in his life, set him off on a different path. Uh, and as a consequence, he started reading as never before in subjects like ornithology and so forth. And, this, and that is what sent him on the road 
to his lifetime work. And of course, that is what changed the world. So what seemed to have been the worst possible thing that could have happened to him or to the family turned out to be what made him. And until I began work on my book, uh, there was very little interest or query about, well, who hit him? And was it accidental or intentional? Well, it turned out that the other boy that hit him, and we still don't know whether it was accidental or intentional, but the, but the boy who hit him turned out to be one of the most notorious murderers in the history of Ohio. A man who uh, killed his mother, father, and his brother, and an estimated 12 more besides, and was ultimately executed. So, and, it, and, and as a boy, he didn't live right around the corner, same neighborhood. So it's very interesting that in the same rather small neighborhood on a back side street in Dayton, Ohio, uh, genius uh, emerged and evil in the more, most human and, and, uh, and atrocious fashion emerged. And, but that's, of course, part of life. That's part of the story. Mm -hmm. And like a lot of things that really happen, if you put it in a novel, people say, well, this is overdoing it. This, this never would have happened. Yes, it did. One of the things that's also so remarkable is how fast aviation grew from the Wright brothers' time. Wilbur died very young, as, as you talk about. Orville lived quite a long time. In fact, to see remarkable progress with respect to the business that they started. Talk about that. Well, you're absolutely right. It's a terrible pun to say, but the the airplane just took off. I mean, it it, it suddenly and became advancing faster than anybody expected, including the Wright brothers. Uh, would would men ever be able to fly the Atlantic Ocean? No, they didn't think that would be possible because they knew how heavy the aircraft would have to be to carry that much gasoline and that much water to cool the engine. What they had figured out was when someone would invent an air-cooled engine, which is why Lindbergh was able to fly the Atlantic. Uh, they never pictured the airplane as being a means of passenger service. Wilbur died in 1912, tragically, very much too soon. He was only in his mid-40s. But as you said, Orville lived on until 1948. He saw, he, he was alive when Lindbergh flew the Atlantic, he saw the advent of jet propulsion. He saw the advent of rockets. And he also saw the, the use of the airplane as a weapon of war and destruction and mass death in uh, World War One and World War Two. And he would be asked, how do you feel about that? He said, I feel terrible about it. Uh, but the fact is, just like the invention of fire, this device can be used for good or evil. And uh, it's all up to us. Uh, he, um, we think of 1903 or 1905 as long, long ago, and yes, it was more than 100 years ago. But in terms of history, it was just the other day. It was a blink of the eye. Uh, Wilbur, as I said, died in 1948. If I had grown up in Dayton, Ohio, in the same neighborhood, I could have known him. I was 15 in 1948. 
he could have been that nice old gentleman around the corner that <laughs> I always like to say hello to. Incredible. And yet, today, this summer, for example, 222 million people are going to fly in airlines. Not, not counting all the military flights and private airplanes and all the rest. 222 million people. And we go up to 30, 35, 40,000 feet and think nothing of it. But how did it happen? Who did it? David McCullough. The book is The Wright Brothers. It's just out from Simon & Schuster. David, it is always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, I thank you, and I appreciate very much several of the questions you asked. Uh, I think you really have done something to help uh, convey the extraordinary nature of what these two men accomplished. David McCullough, thank you so much. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 